This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I am very excited about the guest of today's episode. He is working as a medical doctor at private Latour Hospital in Geneva. He is manager of health and performance at sports medicine department. Among many other things, he has been doing sports medicine development and research at Stanford University in US, have played basketball in Swiss national team, and have been amateur triathlete completing the Ironman. Ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Boris Goyanovich. Welcome, Boris. Hello, Ali. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for taking the time time in the in the podcast. Uh, so how how is everything at the moment in, in Switzerland? Yeah, well the, the situation is is slowly coming to a change in Switzerland. So we've been in a bit of a partial or relative lockdown for the last six weeks, five weeks and a half. And uh, but people were still able to go out, um, not only for uh, absolute necessity, as in groceries or people who had jobs that they had to continue, but also it was still possible to go out for a walk or uh, for leisure activities. Whilst it was important to respect the the gathering of maximum of five people and social distancing recommendation, so that's been the situation. And uh, just recently, our government, that was last um, Friday, announced. Uh, progressive uh, coming out of uh, the confinement and the lockdown strategy for the next uh, two months gradually, which means that basically in a couple of weeks from now, two and a half weeks from now, schools or three weeks from now, schools will reopen. And uh, so that's a little bit the situation. For me personally, I've been um, uh, doing my work uh, from a distance. So um, I've been doing a lot of uh, teleconsulting and uh, we'll probably get into that a bit later, but it's been a it's been special time, you know. It's um, everything is changed for the way we we do we practice what we do. I am not directly involved at the front line of um, emergency medicine, so uh, so I'm trying to accommodate a little bit the situation. Mm. And as a as a medical professional, how how do you see this this whole situation, and how do you see this plan of going out of the lockdown progressively in, in the next two months? Yeah, look, there's many, many questions around that. And obviously, we don't have all the answers. So um, if you look at uh, the media and social media in general, you'll have a ton of different opinions from experts, real experts, so-called experts, etc. So I, I'm not going to have here a, 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 an expert discussion because I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not an infectious mm. disease specialist. So... Uh, from the medical standpoint, I think uh, one thing we've observed is a is a strong reduction in consultations, also for emergent matters, as in uh, heart attacks, for example. There's been a, a, a very important uh, reduction in the number of consultations for chest pain, and potentially that might be a concern. Uh, 
Uh, now, mm. obviously, people not consulting for things that are not really dangerous and don't matter urgently, I, I guess it's not a bad thing and uh, people can cope with minor issues. But definitely, there's been a bit of um, worrying about people not going to doctors because they're afraid or not going to the hospital because they're afraid of COVID-19. And uh, whilst they may have health issues that need to be looked after. So that's one thing. Uh, on the other hand, I think the, the questions we have is uh, uh, we don't know how many people are actually infected or carrying the virus and potentially contagious. We don't really know uh, if uh, the asymptomatic people uh, transmitted much. And, uh, and I guess we, we don't really know who develops immunity or not. So those are all questions that we have and that we're looking forward to the, the, the research that's very active and that's trying to, to get those data out for us in the coming weeks and months so that we can manage it as best we can. Mm. Yeah. So, so you have been doing uh, telehealth. You have been distance uh, work. How, how has it been going as a medical practitioner? Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. Uh, obviously, you know, when you um, medicine, when you, when you study medicine and um, uh, at uh, the faculty, and then as you Uh, work on your craft a little bit further on you 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 put a lot of value on relationships uh, with your patients um, the 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 act of medicine or the art of medicine and uh, be it listening or physical examination and know your clinical signs and and really make a very thorough physical educate uh, examination and tests etc to get to your diagnosis so when when you grow up as a medical doctor with all these ideas the thought of telemedicine is is actually almost insulting uh, because you know how can you reduce the art of medicine to just a screen or a phone and and, and just having a discussion and looking at things so that's one way of looking at it and uh, i've oftentimes heard those comments from um, from people in the medical Um, the medical sector. But uh, I think there's more to it. And um, I've been really interested in those aspects of medicine in the last few years, all the, the e-health, mobile health, and also telehealth. But I haven't really pushed it because I didn't have to. Uh, I had my patients coming in the hospital, I have all my consultations, there's a lot of work. So, you know, you nothing pushes you to do that. But still, there was something that was teasing me because uh, imagine the following situation. You have somebody who has a minor ailment. Let's say, you know, I do sports medicine, so oftentimes people will complain of uh, knee pain. Maybe minor knee pain is because they're running or because they've started an exercise program. And, mm. and you'll have people that are maybe highly active uh, professionally, uh, privately, they have a family and all that. And these people will take about three hours of their day, three or four hours to, even if the hospital is not very far from them, but just to get there, get there on time, uh, make sure they have enough time and then go back to work, etc. So for those, some of them, it's half a day mm. they'll take just to have a little discussion about what's happening to their knee. And sometimes mm. you realize this could be done from a distance and you could give sound advice Uh, for someone who hasn't uh, really heard about uh, sound training uh, advice and progression and things like that. So with all this considered, when the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic 
erupted and then we saw that things were going to go in a way of a lockdown and uh, people would have to stay at home and would not be able to come to the hospital and to my practice to do the consultation. Uh, actually, what I did is on, on day one of the lockdown, uh, within one hour, I was set up to do uh, telehealth. And it's not complicated, really. I mean, all you need is, is, a, is a video uh, consulting software or teleconference software. And there are many out there and uh, there are no rules. That's the thing. We didn't have any rules. So um, the, actually, the medical association of our region in Switzerland said, well, you could use some of the tools like, uh, like Skype or like WhatsApp or others. You know, they didn't really have an idea of what was out there, what was needed. So mm -hmm. I had a platform I was already using to interact with patients, and that was to prescribe exercises and rehab exercises and training and things like that, which had um, a, a video conference module Uh, embedded into it and I started using that and it works perfectly fine so again I mean uh, with the help of my assistant and uh, she went home and she stayed home and she organized everything from home uh, we had shared uh, documents on, on platforms that are secured and uh, we got up and got started and that was the beginning of a, of a new experience really hmm. so You know, to get back to what I was saying, like the resistance of the medical community to telehealth, I understand where it comes from. But I started thinking about it and uh, what I realized, uh, and I guess that was a, a bit of a hunch I had or, you know, intuition that I felt was, was right, is when you are on the screen and you are talking to someone, you're actually listening a lot more. Because you can't jump from your chair to go examine that knee or whatever it is that the person is um, is complaining about. You've got to listen. You've got to take the time. And actually, that part of medicine is so important. We know the value of taking a medical history, but there, this is almost all you've got, right? I mean, it's a, a huge part of what you've got is the medical history. Sure, you can guide your questions and all that, but you, you will interrupt a lot less, I think, on the screen um, because you have to listen. It's, that's what you've got. And then the part of physical examination is actually quite interesting because there's a lot of things that you can do when we talk about sports medicine and physical activity medicine. There's a lot of functional testing that you can do. Actually, it's just looking at how people move and how they execute some movements be it general movements or be it just specific movements around the joint, etc. So there's a mm. lot of things you can do, I find. Mm. And uh, how, how do you see that there was no regulation with the telehealth? Do you think there should be some specific software which is encrypted and, and so on that it's, it, it is safe the data is safe even in the in the discussion and in the video call yeah obviously i think that's a requirement and there are international requirements uh, the gdprs for europe and, and uh, most of these sof softwares are compliant so so that's one thing then there's a specific uh, regulation within the country uh, that has uh, their requirements uh, as far as where the, the data is stored the servers and how it's encrypted etc but uh, i think Some countries are not very far ahead in the, the digitalization of many aspects of our lives. And uh, Switzerland, uh, it may be surprising, but it's not very advanced in that aspect. Even for electronic health records, we don't have uh, systems that are uh, really 
spread across the country. There's there's quite a few companies that offer some uh, electronic health record solutions, and most of the solutions do not communicate with the others. So there, there's a problem of transmitting information in a safe way across the different partners of healthcare system in Switzerland. So that's that's a bit of a concern. Um, and and the other thing is, um, I, I guess there's been a bit of resistance from the medical community as well. You know, the the medical community has not been pushing for digitalization and electronic systems in healthcare, because I think there's a tradition, there's this culture of valuing the physical contact and the physical presence, which again, I value and I think is very important and it gives us more than what we can do digitally. But we have to see these things working together. And um, and I guess for me, for the future, I will continue to use uh, telehealth solutions in addition to the, the real life consultations that I'm doing. So so that's what I would say. Now, as far as the, the regulations, also there's another aspect which, uh, which is a bit of an issue now, is that the billing for consultations on electronic platforms is not organized. So what was there for Swiss uh, doctors and practitioners, for example, is that you can build a telephone call with your patient and there's a limit of time for that. Specifically, there's a 20-minute limit. Mm. Now, in 20 minutes, you can, do, you can do a consultation and you can do some good things, I think. But really, when people have a story to tell and they have an ailment, you basically need 15 to 20 minutes of history taking. And before you can get them to do some movements, maybe to do a bit of an assessment, and then you have a discussion. And you, you want to lead that discussion in a way that's uh, a shared decision-making discussion. And mm. you want to inform and you want to get tr- make sure that the patient um, has understood or has uh, asked all the questions. Within 20 minutes, that's really difficult. So that's a bit of a gap there. And uh, people are conscious about it. And uh, we'll see what happens in the future. Mm. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. And, and how do you see the, the wearables in, in telehealth in relation to sport medicine and, and also in general medical practice? Yeah, look, I see that as a, as a huge opportunity and I would like to say so far almost a missed opportunity on many aspects because it, it seems that... Um, the wearable market and the wearable industry has uh, first developed itself uh, on a, on a client-oriented uh, model, or uh, basically uh, you are selling the wearable to a person that's going to use it on on his or her own out there. Now, and, and those wearables are usually not meant to be shared 
with the healthcare practitioners or the medical community. So that was sort of the initial thing. You can think of uh, heartbeat trackers or movement trackers or pedometers or things like that initially. And then there's a lot more wearables that are coming to the market in recent years. But the, the, the problem I see is that for, for the last, what, maybe 10 years, uh, with the gradual explosion of the wearable market, people have been buying tools uh, or they've received them for Christmas, maybe, or who knows, for a present. Mm. And they've been using them for a little bit and then they've dropped them. And unless you're an avid athlete that likes data and that is uh, adamant about recording everything and, and looking at your data, a lot of people have just stopped either using the tools or they use a smartwatch or a, um, a wearable watch just as a watch and not for all the other aspects that it can bring. So that, that I find really interesting. And that was basically the starting point. Now, in, in the I would say in the past four years, I started working with some of these devices more specifically uh, to counsel my patients and to track a little bit what they're doing. On the one hand, there's the athletes, and uh, they may have a, a platform, a dashboard where they, they, they log everything they're doing. You know, I can have a look at their heart rates. I can have a look at the intensity, the hours of what they're doing, get a sense of their training loads, etc. So that's the basically the sports medicine side and the elite sports medicine and uh, and that's not nothing new. I mean, it's been done. It's done by coaches regularly. There's platforms that share the data between athletes and coaches. Uh, not very mm. well with, with third party, as in doctors or, or, or other healthcare practitioners, but still, it, it exists and it's possible to have a look at all that. So that's been helpful, uh, I would say. Then what I found a lot more interesting was to use these devices for people who are actually only beginning or want to begin to move. We're talking about uh, the fight against inactivity, uh, against sedentariness, and, and just gradual progression into any type of physical activity. And that's where I found there's a there's a very important value in those tools because what what people lack, I guess, when when they, when you're talking about physical activity and their health is a bit of physical literacy. Okay, so what it is that we're talking about, what is movement, what is, it, what is physical activity, how much mm. do I need to do, etc. And uh, although, I mean, we could go into those questions in detail, and I know you're, you're, you're very fond of, uh, you know, measuring these things and, um, and, and talking about physical activity and sedentary uh, activity, inactivity. But I think that these tools provide us with an opportunity to do a bit of education. And uh, the, the the first thing is to have the, the patient or the person accept the idea of tracking some of the things they do. That's the first mm. step, of the first hurdle. And oftentimes mm. there's resistance there. So I, I see uh, so some patients that I'll, you know, I'll offer them to maybe use a device that they have or get another type of device that can be fairly cheap, I'd say, and mm. to share the data with me, and so we can we can work together on on having a look at what they're doing over the week, etc. Uh, I think what they what they get very quickly in that discussion is that if they see the doctor or a coach or somebody else once a week or once every month, uh, I, I'm not going to see my patients every week for that. You know, maybe sometimes it's once a month. 
And mm. I don't know what's happening for the 29 other days of that month. It's really hard for me to, to counsel them correctly. Um, the discussion is about how can we adapt things uh, not on a daily basis, but I'd say, you know, on a weekly basis and see what they're doing and get feedback. So feedback and feed forward is basically communication. If we can get mm. that communication going, but sometimes we don't need to be physically present, but it goes through some data that uh, empowers the discussion, informs the discussion, and then the counseling that can happen after that, I feel there's a lot of value. And, um, and obviously, I think it works for quite a few people once they, they, they go past that first hurdle and they say, okay, I want to try it. Um, it, it, it helps a lot. Hmm. And, and so you have actually been doing this, that you recommend some, some activity tracker and sharing of the data. How, how much you have been doing and how, how much do you see it has been of benefit? Yeah, so I guess it's, uh, it's progressing. Uh, it's progressing for, for different reasons. First of all, is um, uh, I'd say, well, maybe one step back. If you if you consider, you know, the introduction you made in my activity, okay, I'm a sports medicine doctor and I was an athlete, etc. And, and here I am talking about people that are inactive and, and that need to move more. Uh, why would these people come to a sports medicine doctor? You know, it, that's the first mm. hurdle, I guess. And uh, I work in a place that's uh, that's known for sports medicine, that's uh, linked to Olympic athletes, etc. So people might be a bit scared to come to us because they would say, you know, I'm overweight, I'm 50, I have never done sports, why would I come and see these guys? So the first thing is that over the years, uh, I've developed much more of an interest in these people because I think that everything we do and we've learned through physiology and training and looking after athletes of every level is applicable to a human being and especially to one that hasn't been moving much and that needs to improve their health. It's only a matter of adaptation of any advice that you will give to the current state, the status of that person. So mm. that that's the starting point. And, uh, and then w- we've learned so much about the body and the physiology of the body in elite athletes, that we can apply that because it's uh, it's one body and one physiology. You know, it's just a different type of level, mm. that's all. So that's the first thing. So then you have to make that known. You have to make, um, uh, to communicate with uh, maybe other healthcare practitioners, general practitioners and all that. Uh, I do quite a fair bit of um, continuous professional development, education in the medical setting, also in the physiotherapeutic setting. And so gradually people have started to hear uh, the fact that sports medicine can also provide some sound advice, hopefully for people who need to get active. So over the years, and especially the last five years, I've developed a growing interest um, from patients for our services in promoting their health. And uh, the basic tenet of it is usually people, by the time they're 40 or 45, they start to, you know, to wake up a little bit one day and they look around and they've put on 10 kilos or 20 kilos, who knows. They've stopped doing activity. They've worked so hard. Uh, now maybe their kids are a little bit older and they're thinking, oh, I can't even walk with my kids. You know, we talked about mm-hmm. hiking, uh, you and I, and, uh, you know, I love to go hiking. And uh, I see parents that have young kids and they don't go hiking because they can't. They're out of breath. Mm. And we're in Switzerland. It's marvelous. There's, there's so many 
fantastic areas to go to. And, um, and these people can't do it and they wish they could. Oftentimes they will come and they say, look, I've got uh, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, and uh, I'd like to do activity with them, but I see that I'm unfit and this is a problem and that's why I want to get back. And, um, and at the same time, they may have prediabetes, they may have hypertension and other things. So there's all the reasons in the world for them to get active. And, uh, mm. and that's how over the years I've had more and more of these patients come to me. So, which leads us to, you know, how to help people. And, uh, and it's a long discussion. Promoting physical activity and health is a long discussion on, on many levels. For the one, the one on wearables, um, sometimes I'll notice during the initial consultation what they have on their wrist. And oftentimes people will come in and they have an activity watch or something. You know, and, mm. and I'll ask them, you know, what do you do with it? Oftentimes they don't do anything with it. Oh, yeah, no, I bought it, but, you know, uh, yeah, I don't really know, and, and it ends there. So we start talking about it. When they don't have it, I ask them about, you know, do you know how much activity you're doing? What could you possibly know? Usually they don't really know, and then when we get into the discussion, I ask, what about steps? Oh, yeah, how many steps? Yeah, I heard that might be a way to measure how much I'm doing. So then we take their phones out and, and they're surprised to see that their phone has been tracking how many steps they've been doing. So I show mm. them these things and go to the apps that are automatically tracking the steps and most of the phones have that on and they don't even know. So mm. we don't need, I guess, to get into the debate of how precise it is, but it, it starts the discussion, you know, mm. and, and they get and, hooked. Yeah. And and do you, do you see mainly it as, as you said, to empower the discussion as to get to the level of some sort of physical literacy and and that it's just kind of facilitating these these discussions yeah i think that the goal of um of a physical activity counseling consultation is to approach behavior and uh well two things i think behavior and motivation behind the behavior and uh, i think it starts by people understanding a little bit what aspects of health are related to physical activity and what physical activity means. And if we can get that discussion to the next level, we can then start exploring motivations and link mm. the motivation that people have to the new understanding or the, the, the developed understanding they have about physical activity. And when we have that, then we can get back to the devices, the tools, and the means to get to the next level of activity. Mm. And when you go, for example, to the discussion of steps, do you do you give some kind of guidelines to people, like progressive goals, or how do you usually approach this one? Oh, yeah, I tell all of them you got to get 10,000 steps per day. Yeah. No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. Look, we, we've all heard of, of the 10,000 steps. And uh, by the way, do you know where, where the 10,000 steps come from? I think a Japanese guy thought that it's right, a right number. Right. And so, that sounds good. So I think there's nothing yeah. else behind that yeah. than a round it, number. It was actually a, a company in Japan in the 1960s that did a little pedometer. And it was a, it was a promotion for a company. And, uh, and they started saying 10,000 steps. And that was it. So there yeah. never was any any official guidelines for that. It's just been taken up from there. But basically what I will do is and, and, and always stay true to what matters to that person in front of me. So the first thing is to understand where they come from. 
and where they come from means how fit they are now and how much they're doing. So that's mm. why I try to get an assessment of how much they're doing. And if I have on their phone, it says 3,000 steps on average per day in the last month. If I tell them you got to get 10,000 steps, it's, it's, I'm lost. I've lost them, you know, and, mm. and they're never going to get on board with any kind of advice that I will give them because initially, uh, I mean, automatically they all say, oh, yeah, sports, medicine, they, these crazy people, they think I can do 10,000 steps, yet I'm only doing 3,000. So what we'll do is we'll gradually give a goal uh, to increase by about maybe 20% on some days and uh, see if they can manage to get to four or 5,000 steps on specific mm. days, maybe on weekends, and uh, try to maintain the, the base that they have or increase it a little bit. And then we'll see how it is after two, three, four weeks, and I'll give them feedback on that. What's really important, if we talk just about the steps and if it's just the first thing that we look at and that we'll do for the first month or two, what's mm. really important is that I can track it in a way that I can get feedback and that then I do something with that feedback. You need to act on the feedback that they give you because if I log on to their platform of the device that they have and I look at the steps and I say, oh, fine, they haven't changed and that's it and I don't react, nothing's mm. happening. Whereas if I contact a patient and I, maybe just an email, you know, and I'll shoot an email and say, hey, I see that um, you've done good last week and this week you've done a little bit less. Is everything okay? Um, I hope you're doing fine, but keep going. Last week was really good. Mm. And it's fascinating. Just that it seems, it seems obvious and it seems a small thing to do, right? Um, but the message the patient gets is, the doctor's gone out of his way to log on to the platform and then taken the time to analyze and then sent me an email that's for me and encouraging me to do more. Okay, mm. That's a powerful message because it doesn't happen that often, I guess. And uh, they see it as individualized. They see it as time that you've dedicated to them and that you're interested in what they're doing. And then you're giving them constructive feedback. It's, for me, it took me a minute. Hmm. about a minute it's really quick you know once you know how to use you log on you have a look it takes 30 seconds to have a look you write a short email that's it you know but it's, it can make a difference so that's the experience i've, I've had uh, just for this and and then we can we can develop further with a bit of a more sophisticated tracking when you look at exercise intensity and frequency and when people start to really do some some exercise as in dedicated exercise not just uh, everyday walking. Mm. Yeah, you probably know quite well as you have been training for a triathlon at the, about the different intensities. W when do you think people are ready to to do something more intensive that it, it's not too unpleasant if they start and they are quite unfit, they they go to 4,000 5, 4, 5, steps with uh, probably with quite low intensity, when do you think it's the right time to go to a little bit higher intensity? That's a great question. I wish I had that answer uh, just uh, very loud and clear for you. But I think uh, I'm going to give the, the typical answer, answer of it depends. Mm. Um, because because I'm not sure. I'm not sure. What, what, what I certainly see is that there's a lot of people that I see in my consultation that have taken the step to intense activity 
spontaneously on their own or with the advice of some friends or uh, coaches sometimes in, in, you know, in fitness areas and all that, that have done it too fast, too quick, and they come to me because they're hurt, uh, mm. not because they want advice. They come because they're hurting somewhere. And that then starts another discussion on what have you been doing? How have you started? Oh, okay. And you see that somebody's just woken up one day and said, okay, I'm going to register for this class. I'm going to go three times a week. I'm going to do CrossFit. I'm going to do body pump courses or whatnot. And um, even though if you look at all of the specific offers, services that are out there for fitness, and, and you look at the content of most of the classes, you, you could say, this is this is good, you know, it's, it's good content and uh, maybe the progression of a class, of a one-hour class somewhere is good. But the problem is it doesn't always take into consideration where people come from. Mm-hmm. And uh, they come from a, oftentimes a very unfit level and a very unsure of their fitness. So people will do what they're told because they're motivated. They're sometimes too motivated or, or they say, their motivation is to lose weight, which is not the best motivation, I would say. But they will go through uh, whatever uh, the, the the sporting world or the fitness industry offers out there, and oftentimes they'll get hurt. So when mm. I have someone who comes in firsthand without an injury but just wants to start an activity, I'll always start with getting a baseline of uh, gentle fitness. That means a baseline of physical activity. Sometimes we will test the physical fitness, uh, really in the lab setting, if they're interested, but I'm not pushing for it because we mm. can do without in the initial stages. Some people are wanted because they're happy to see the numbers and all that. And it's good to have a baseline because if there's one thing we know is people, when they're very unfit or when they, they want to start something, the baseline is going to be low and we can improve that baseline within three or four months very well. So sometimes mm. it's also a good way to motivate them and, and you know show them the, the low numbers at the start and then repeat that after a few months and say, look, this is great, you know, the progress you've made, etc. So that's another motivation. But I really want to establish a base level of activity. If people come from no activity, a lot of sedentary time during the day, we're going to go through the easy things, you know, how we integrate more walking, how we get a little bit of strength in the lower body through stairs, uh, using more regularly, or maybe some other activities that they might enjoy doing as a family and uh, with their kids or some some playing activity, etc. But really stay mm. a little bit away from the um, voluntary or dedicated intense activity uh, mm. until they've developed that base. And when they feel more self-confident about their movement, they feel their fitness or their breathlessness improving, then we can talk about adding a bit of intensity. That's where I like to do it sometimes with uh, with coaching. Uh, I have, uh, at my hospital, we have a coaching department as well. And the great thing about it is that we work together as, as an interdisciplinary team. So sometimes we can really make sure that we get them in once a week or once every other week or we, we just track a little bit what they're doing and we teach them also about intensity. Just mm. as, you know, counting the steps is something they didn't know about and then intensity is something they didn't know about. You, you mentioned before uh, me personally as a triathlete. Now, before I did triathlon, I was a basketball player and I played mm. for many years actually at a high level in Switzerland, so very low level outside of Switzerland. And um, 
and I don't think I learned much as far as um, as intensity of activity. It was play. It was always intense, and I didn't know much about exercise physiology. When I started triathlon after my basketball, basketball career, I was like 32, 33. Now, obviously, I was a medical doctor, and I had already developed an interest in physical exercise and science around exercise. So triathlon was really a way for me to learn more and test things on my body, as in how you train, how intense it is, how you respond, how tiredness kicks in, etc. So obviously mm. that's an advantage when you go through the motions and you learn yourself and oftentimes in the sports medicine or sports and health world, people, the practitioners have been exercising themselves for some time. So, but I had to learn all that. You know, even though I had been an athlete before, I still had to learn what does these numbers mean? You know, how can I use them? And sure, I added a level of, of understanding through science and through research that was conducting. So, you know, allowing me to understand more and more. But it's the same for someone who's not used to doing any kind of intensity. It's good for them to understand why we do it, how we do it, and how we're going to monitor what they're doing to make sure that we don't overdo it, but also to make sure that we do enough, uh, that the stimulus is right. And uh, we don't want them to get hurt or tired or anything, but we do want to stimulate that cardiovascular system, that muscular system, so that the positive adaptations of exercise happen gradually. Mm. Yeah, that makes all, all sense. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. How do you see for very unfit people like intense training? It probably has some effect on the, their immunity and now there's this coronavirus risk Do you see any risks for unfit people at the moment? Yeah, actually, I, I do. Now, we know a little bit, and I insist a little bit, from 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 science and from the literature that there are positive and potentially negative effects of exercise on immunity. Uh, I don't think the jury is quite clear out there on how much exercise boosts immunity or protective immunity against viruses and how much might be a problem. Uh, th there's a bit of debate on that, and obviously the studies are very hard to conduct. But if we look at uh, the, the, the evidence that we have out there, it seems to point to a reduction of susceptibility to viral infections. So we're talking upper respiratory tract infections in people who are regularly active from moderate activity to regular uh, training. But when... Athletes, for example, or people in general train hard, that means at a, at a relatively hard intensity for a sustained period, 
then their immunity might suffer. The stress levels of the body are too high. And we know that that can lead to maybe overtraining or fatigue or lack of recovery, but it can also uh, lead to immunity um, reduction and then more susceptibility to infection. We've known that, uh, you know, after uh, ultra races, be it triathlons, be it marathons or things like that, people tend to have during the training process or after the races, uh, a higher incidence of upper respiratory tract infections. And some studies have shown up to five times the incidence of these. Now, they may not be severe and, uh, and that's fine, you know, what you get a cold and for a week and that's it. But when we're talking coronavirus and especially the current coronavirus, that might be more severe. So what I understand from all that, and, um, and, and I've looked into it a little bit in the past few weeks, is that we have to, certainly we have to treat the current coronavirus as uh, a, a virus that can benefit potentially from moderate and regular physical activity. And we don't know whether that's true or not, but other coronavirus types that are linked to the common cold seem to benefit from moderate physical activity on a regular basis. Mm. And on the other hand, we have to be wary of the fact that doing too intense training for a body that is not ready or used to doing it, or that is really pushed to the limits a bit too much, might be a risk for contracting that same virus. And, uh, and you don't want to be there. You don't want to go there in current times. So that has consequences, I think, for elite athletes. And uh, I, I look after the Swiss uh, national triathlon team, and we've told the athletes, we would like you to avoid sustained high-intensity exercise. Now, sometimes to do interval training and do an intense session is probably okay, and that's part of training, and that's part of boosting your system and getting making sure that you, you keep your training levels. Mm. But it's not the time now with every uncertainty or the certainty that uh, competitions have been cancelled, etc. It's not the time to train at your maximum and, and try to, to dig your hole as far as fatigue and immune system goes. Now, that's for the elite athlete. And to go back to your question, you were talking about, you know, is there a risk for people who, who might do too intense activity? Uh, I certainly see that risk because as much as... Uh, people have been stuck at home. There's been a lot of offers online of people being very creative and imaginative and supportive of people being locked down in their homes to offer training programs at home and video classes, etc. And the problem with that is that there's not so many things that you can do within your home. And oftentimes, people will revert to a program that involves jumping around, uh, lunges, squats, burpees, jumping jacks, mountain climbers, whatnot, you know, all these exercises that are, that are feel-good exercises, but that if you do too much or even if you start doing for a few sessions and you're not used to do it, you know, you're going to have knee pain, hip pain or Achilles pain or whatnot. But yeah. also it might, it might tire you because you're not used to doing it. It's, it can be very intense. So that's not the goal. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And what do you make out of the findings that it seems that the obesity or even overweight is, is very related to uh, COVID-19 and the ICU? So people who are in the ICU from coronavirus seem to be more overweight and obese than, than in the normal population. 
Yes. So, I mean, obviously the data just keep coming in on the, the, the risk factors that are identified to end up in an ICU or under a ventilator with uh, COVID uh, SARS-2. And um, I mean, I'm not really sure of the, the, the validity of all the data that we see for now, but I have talked to some friends who are leading ICUs in our university hospitals around here in the, in the Swiss mm. region. And uh, they ha- definitely have mentioned that there's a lot of prevalence of overweight and obesity in the patients that come in to the ICU. Now, of course, uh, the debate here is that people that have comorbidities, that have diabetes, that have cardiovascular issues, etc., chronic diseases tend to be also more overweight and obese. So it might just be a confounding factor that we have and uh, and just some correlation there or not just a, a causative effect that obesity leads to more uh, severity in uh, COVID-19 symptoms and, um, and hospitalization criteria. But we still have to look at this and say, okay, um, probably if you're in uh, worse health or uh, if you have uh, overweight and obesity, that might be a risk for you. So the question becomes, can you do something about it? And uh, now, for just now, in these weeks, I guess you can't do much about it. Although within a month, people can lose some weight if they do an adequate training program and they pay attention to what they eat and how they eat, etc. And they rest and sleep and recover. But Mm. the question, I think, becomes for the future because we don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, this might be a one-off coronavirus outbreak, but it's not the first outbreak in the last um, years. There may be more, and people are still discussing whether, you know, we don't know, is it going to be seasonal? Are we going to have uh, recurrences? And if that's the case, we really need to look at those risk factors for severe symptoms, and we need to start to address them. And if obesity ends up being one of them, it's one more reason to address obesity uh, very directly uh, through through me- measures for public health. Now, having said that, <coughs> excuse me, it's not it's not new, not new that we need to fight obesity and we need to get people to have a, a better uh, metabolic profile, etc. But I think sometimes. It is also about looking at the, <clears throat> the positive effects that we can <coughs> that we can get from a crisis like this one, and one of them is the the awareness and the importance of some health aspects, <clears throat> and that's why I think there's a way to to promote physical activity in a different way, also, not to scare people from the recurrence from coronavirus, but just to use the awareness that people have of the importance of their general health overweight and obesity being part of it. And then physical activity and other aspects of health promotion and prevention need to be integrated. Mm. I, I think that's an important point. And, and like you said, it might be recurring the coronavirus yearly. And, and basically, we are not going to get rid of it before a big part of the population is infected and then immune to it or we have the vaccine so this this might take some time and i think for many people if they know that they can improve quite much their chances of 
of surviving or not getting the coronavirus serious, I think it could be a good good time for this kind of prehabilitation before you you might might get the get infected. Yeah, I think that's a you you dropped a term there, prehabilitation. So so what what do we mean by prehabilitation? Basically means whatever we can do to improve the the condition of our physiology of our body of our metabolism before any uh, any type of major uh, health event happens uh, you might consider major surgery so let's say somebody has a has a scheduled surgery we know that if we improve the physical fitness of that person before they go into that major surgery there's a strong effect on the number of days you will be spending maybe in the ICU, the recovery time after your operation, etc. So if you do that prehabilitation before the, the operation, you will have a better outcome and also it will cost less to the healthcare system. So that's a very good investment. And if you can also create a positive habit of keeping fit and looking after your health uh, through that, well, then I think it's a win-win situation. Now, uh, it's interesting. We, we've had these studies for a while on, on major surgery and prehabilitation, yet it's not done. It's, it's, it's really not even integrated into the healthcare system. Uh, the question being, you know, who would conduct the physical training before um, a major surgery, for example? Now, physiotherapists can do that, and I, I work a lot with physiotherapists. They're really my first partners there. But they mm. oftentimes, they're not really trained for that prehabilitation and physical conditioning. It, it's not directly their job. Now, some of them have developed an interest and have done maybe sports physiotherapy or cardiovascular physiotherapy, and they have developed an interest in that and also are competent. But there's also a lot of physical activity coaches in adapted physical activity for health that are being trained in universities everywhere, especially in Switzerland as well for the last uh, 10 years. And they haven't found their place in the healthcare system simply because their services are not being paid for by insurance companies. So the healthcare system will not pay for you to go to a coach to get fitter before a major intervention. Whereas we know that this will reduce the cost overall and will potentially have a lasting effect on your positive routine and, and uh, approach to health. So that's something that needs to change. And uh, we, we'd like to see it change, but it requires a lot of um, political lobbying. And maybe, again, the pandemic and the consequences of the pandemic need to, to have consequences after that, uh, as far as how we understand prehabilitation, maintaining, maintaining good health, and physical conditioning or physical activity for him. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think the good thing with the prehabilitation approach is that people really should have a higher motivation in this situation because they know that they are going, for example, for a major surgery and survival from, from those are not always so good or there's quite a big risks. And the evidence knows shows very clearly that better your fitness is better your survival rate so i think there would be an advantage of the on the on the motivation there yeah 
For sure. And uh, I, I just want to make one thing clear because I, I haven't said that. And uh, sometimes we could take a shortcut uh, and we shouldn't. We don't have data that tell us that if you are fitter, you suffer less from COVID-19 symptoms or severity of the disease. Okay. Currently, I haven't seen any data that say, you know, if your VO2 max is uh, higher than uh, the likelihood of you suffering from long-term symptoms or for a longer stay in the hospital is higher. Uh, mm. we can we can maybe think it's a hypothesis based on all the prehabilitation knowledge that we have uh, for major ICU stays etc and also the fact that people who are more overweight and obese tend to have more severe symptoms we can make a hypothesis that being fitter protects you more against these outcomes uh, we will need to see the data i don't know to what extent we'll have such data after this pandemic um, because and here we come to a, to a major problem that we have is that as much as many people know their cholesterol level, or they may know their blood pressure levels, or they certainly know if they're overweight or not, because weight and height is easy to measure. Mm. People don't know what their fitness levels are. Uh, we can yeah. always ask them how much active they are. And we have standardized questionnaires to estimate their physical activity levels. And this in turn indirectly estimates their physical fitness. And we can work with that, but it would really, I think, at some point be necessary, I mean, we're way past that point, in my opinion, to have physical fitness measured systematically over the lifetime uh, in one way or another. There's different ways to measure it. We don't need to be too complicated in how we measure it, as in lab testing, but we should have a good sense of how physically fit people are or not. And that will enable us then to know how much it plays a role in, in, in disease and morbidity. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. Do, do you have any ideas how should it be done? You could use like heart rate variability in the rest. You could maybe use like GBS to measure the distance and the heart rate during that. And you could estimate the fitness. It would probably probably classify people quite well in a population level do you have any suggestions how how should it be done yeah yeah i think you're making very good suggestions and um uh, you know a simple walking test um that measures the distance so you get the walking speed and that measures heart rate so you get a sense of intensity now obviously heart rate is personal and uh and you would have to correlate a little bit the heart rate of the test to the variation in that heart rate over the course of other activities, etc. So it could really uh, sort of personalize the test uh, as far as heart rate analysis goes. And so that's doable. And um, it, it doesn't have to be difficult. You can do a, a one kilometer or two kilometer walking test and see how far people go, I mean, how fast people go and also how the heart rate responds. You can then look at heart rate recovery just after the exercise for one or two minutes. And we know that if it goes down uh, by a certain amount of beats in the first minute, that's a good sign of fitness and etc. Mm. So th there's ways of doing this. Uh, I would personally like to see those embedded into smartphones and, and smartwatches so that there's a simple standardized test that says, go for a walk, go at an easy pace, um, give instructions on the pace based on something like the Borg scale, but just on, you know, be slightly out of breath, uh, not sweaty, etc. And then do the same walk another time, but now you want to be out of breath and you want to be pushing a little bit more. 
and uh, mm -hmm. we can assume that like these two tests would be maybe a, a three uh, out of ten on a Borg scale, and the other one would be a six or a seven out of ten on the Borg scale, and then you could compute their fitness levels like that. Uh, seriously, the 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 AI power of these devices, and then you can integrate the heart rate variability. Uh, alongside that, and I'm not an expert in heart rate variability. I'm still struggling to understand everything about it, but there's people that are, and I think you can estimate fitness very well doing that, and um, a lot better actually than what BMI gives you as far as metabolic health, because BMI only measures weight and height, and it doesn't measure the composition of the body. So, I mean, I have athletes that are overweight but they have 10% body fat or 12% body fat and they're very fit. So BMI is not a good measure. And I think that we can do, we can do very well with the smart devices that we have today to estimate fitness. Yeah, I, I, I like your idea that it, it would be a walking test and actually you can have the wearable because if it's tracking the heart rate, it could actually give some kind of audio guidelines from the, for the intensity that if the heart rate is too low, it could encourage to walk a little bit faster and then slow down if it goes goes too high. So I think there's a really good good possibility to develop a really easy test. Yeah, and, and what's, what's great about that uh, is that you can then repeat it after you've initiated some regular physical activity and people will notice the, the improvements and they can be easily tracked because, again, if uh, the the device uh, through audio feedback tells you, well, you can accelerate a little bit now to get to a target heart rate. And they'll notice for, for the same one kilometer walk, they've done 30 seconds less after a few weeks. Well, that's already an improvement. And what happens usually, they'll notice that they've done two minutes less for a one, one kilometer walk, uh, which becomes a great improvement. So this is also what I look at actually with my patients. When, uh, when some of them have um, uh, acquired devices uh, like a GPS-enabled watch and I can log on or they put things on Strava, for example, and usually people stick to their routines, okay? So mm -hmm. when they have a, a nice walking path, they'll repeat the same one regularly, which is really nice because then I can look at that path that they've done today and I'll look one month ago the same course that they've done so you have the same distance the same incline etc and you look at the time and the heart rate and it's, it's fascinating sometimes they'll see that um, they've done it faster for the same heart rate or sometimes they've done it in the same time and they say oh but i haven't really improved my time and i say but how do you feel well it feels okay you look at the heart rate the first time it was 135 average the second time it was 115 average mm. so that's a huge improvement now, there's confounding elements, okay? We've got to be careful always. Um, if you look just as hard at heart rate and not at the general picture, you might be misled by arrhythmia or other elements. And this is my job as a, as a medical doctor to consider all these elements. But we can really track progress. And I think a simple test that would be spread across the, the platforms that people have nowadays, and you know, as we know, as much as digital technologies evolving there's only a few big ones out there that control everything and they could come up with a simple test like that and amazingly yeah. i haven't seen it have you no not at least in widespread use there's there's nothing i think and how, how do you see you 
much earlier you said that kind of the activity trackers are in the client-oriented model. What do you see that is needed for a more medical-oriented model that these trackers would be actually designed for for medical use and would support the work of, of medical doctors? Yeah, well, I think first the reason why it's not been really developed in that sense is also because of regulation. Uh, whenever you talk about medical interaction or, or measuring elements that are linked to health in a specific way, labeled as medical, this device becomes a medical device. And so, again, I'm not an expert in regulation of wearable technology and, 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 and what the labelings are, but I know that as soon as you label it medical, it becomes a problem. So uh, the tighter regulations are there and then it, it doesn't touch the same market. So it's not the same thing to have a, a blood glucose portable monitor for a diabetic patient as far as regulation goes and um, and to have a, a small steps or heart rate tracker. But what's interesting is that they're all linked to health because a heart rate tracker can detect arrhythmia now. And uh, there's, there's some good studies to show that smartwatches can detect irregular heartbeats and potentially flag something that might be like an atrial fibrillation or something else. And it might inform the doctor that this needs to be looked at. So I think we, we're slowly, we are going to cross that bridge where these devices have a value in the interaction with the health sector. The, the, the difficulty lies in, in how the regulation will go and what we do of the data, how they're protected, how they're stored, etc. So I think those are issues and, and I'm not, completely familiar with them and the solutions. What, what I think also is, uh, I mentioned this at the start, you know, there's been a resistance from the medical community at large on, um, on devices and tracking. Uh, I remember I had a, a student do a, a survey in general practitioners in, in the French-speaking part of Switzerland a few years ago on whether they were using any apps for patients to monitor some health parameters just weight mm. or uh, just blood pressure or or some other aspects that and there's there's many apps out there and uh, whether they were uh, seeing any value in it or whether they would want to be using mobile technology and it was it was fascinating to see that 95% of them not only were not using but were reluctant to use such tools and, uh, and we know that this is not where the patient is going. The patient is going in a direction that they want to know what their data are. They want to be able to measure. And what I see in a lot of patients is that they're happy to measure things and record them on some device, hmm. but they also want to make sense of it. And they want you to help. And, uh, and that's where we as healthcare practitioners must embrace technology uh, even though it has limitations and regulations need to be considered, but we have to embrace it for what it is. If the patient is already using some apps or some devices, it is our duty first to ask, are you using any devices to measure things? Then to look and then to make sense or help the patient make sense of it. And I think that's the approach that we need to have. Mm. It, it makes all the sense. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid, and incredibly sturdy. 
I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good valid information. And and as you have been working quite a bit with the athletes, do you do you use it as a, as a tool for injury prevention? I'm I'm thinking like here that you can see, for example, the progression of training load, and if there's, for example, like you mentioned, the knee pain, do you use it in in such a way? Yeah, absolutely. So there again, it's it's teamwork, right? We, we've got to see this with a with a bit of a, a constellation of people participating. So obviously there's the athlete, but then there's the coach. Uh, there may be a regional coach. There may be a national coach. There may be um, a personal trainer. There may be a physiotherapist, etc. So usually what we have and what we try to establish within the elite populations that we follow is that they monitor how much training they do, which means they have a platform where they upload their data, they enter the training they've done, and we can have a look into it. So we try to share that data within a a specific team, people that are designated that can have a look at the data. And then we, if we spot something that seems like could be a risk for an injury, and we're talking about load monitoring mostly and load management. Uh, I look after triathletes a lot and um, they will send me every week or every other week their training Uh, platform or I can log on and have a look whenever I want but they will also send it directly so they also there's the act of sending the report to the other practitioners the coach etc that's important I'll have a look and if I see that there's a spike in in a week or two of running volume for example they've doubled how much running they do we know that this is a risk for injury so I will get back to the coach and I'll get back to the athlete and say you know yeah how are you doing uh, you know just make sure if you feel something in the next few days or weeks you know you got to take it easy and uh, what's happening with your ru- running volume are you are you pushing it for a reason or uh, what's happened, etc. So we'll have that multidisciplinary discussion in order to make sure that they don't push it too hard at some stages. So we'll definitely mm. do that with the athletes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. And and related to coronavirus and athletes, especially like for triathletes, the lungs are really important. As as a medical professional, have you heard about now the media is concentrating on deaths and so on, but if you are an athlete and you get the coronavirus infection, you recover it, but you had some symptoms, is there any long-term effects on the lungs? I think it's too early to know, um, but I can tell you, I am currently thinking of at least a couple of athletes that have been struggling with breathing issues, not very clear, etc., for a couple of weeks, that haven't really been sick, they haven't had typical symptoms of coronavirus, and uh, and we are we are really uh, thinking about that. So uh, we don't know what the evolution will be, um, whether it is so that uh, they can have persistent respiratory limitations. And these limitations in a normal person that's not training at high intensity would maybe not be noticed because in Mm. everyday life or moderate activity, they wouldn't notice it. But as you know, with elite athletes, whenever you're pushing it hard and and they have their goals, et cetera, 
they will feel it. They will have limitations in breathing that can happen. And maybe that can be a consequence of coronavirus pulmonary remnants of the infection. Now, it wouldn't be the first case. We know that viral infection that wasn't just limited to the upper respiratory tract, but that really went into the bronchiae a little bit, um, oftentimes causes limitation in breathing in the athletes for weeks after the fact. I've had athletes mm. for four, six, or eight weeks. They've been limited. The other thing that comes also now into play is that we have the allergy season in Switzerland and in Europe that's in full bloom. And there's a mix also of effects of potentially viral uh, consequences, but also pollen and other inf- other allergies that might kick in. Mm, yeah. And yeah, like you said, we don't really know are there long-term effects on the lungs. What would be your kind of educated guess for the athletes? Should they be, how much they should be avoiding getting the infection or should they concentrate more that they get their training done because they are fit, they probably get, uh, they don't get serious effects? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one to answer. Um, first thing is um, the message I've been giving to athletes is, now now is not the time to be focused on maximum fitness it's the time mm. to be focused on maintaining your health and your fitness levels okay so keep training but also use this time because it's a different time in your lifetime hopefully the the only one but uh, it's a different time and As happens with any injury, I will also tell them, look, an injury is an opportunity for you to use your time differently. Okay, now you have more time or to, to, to think about things in a different way. So it might be for an athlete to learn a little bit about their sport, uh, become a student of your sport. That's also important. Um, I've certainly experienced that when I was a basketball player, studying other players, the best players in the world and all that at times, Uh, brought my playing level to a, to a different uh, position. So I think that's also one thing they can do. There's also a good reason now to focus a bit more on education, maybe. Um, and um, and because they have more time, they're, they're, they're not going to be outside all the time. Mm. And the other thing is, uh, as far as the risk of the disease, with the discussion we had previously on high-intensity training and the risk of being infected, probably potentially is present so that's also another reason to not push their training right now the mm. other thing is um th- there's a few athletes that i have that were training for the olympics now the olympics have been postponed and for some of them uh, i've had a chat to them after the, the olympics have been uh, cancelled and uh it was a huge relief so i think another aspect that needs to be Uh, that's not minor, is the mental health and the stress component of the situation. Uh, again, we don't work alone. Uh, I work with the sports psychologist as well. And mm. for some of our top athletes, it's also a time where I would push them to make sure that they take time for, for them, for their mental health, and to ease the pressure off a little bit and maybe learn new techniques or maybe spend some time to focus on their mental strength as well. Yeah, yeah, really, really good points. So we have talked... I I guess, sorry, I I guess it's also very important. We've talked about in the media a lot about 
people in general, not just athletes, you know, being locked yeah. in home a lot of time and also having kids at home and doing homeschooling. Uh, I know that for myself as well. My kids are at mm. home. I have two little kids. It's also pressure. It's also stress and, and, and you have to cope with that. Now, doing some exercise helps relieve that stress. And one thing I would encourage people to do in the current situation in the extent that they can, if they can go outside for a walk or for a little activity as a family, respecting social distancing and the requirements and the rules of your country um, first, but I would encourage them to do that because it helps connect, it helps relieve the stress and cope with everything that's uh, that's very different in current time. Mm, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so we have talked over an hour and maybe we have covered one third of the bullet points we had in the in the list that we could discuss so i would i would suggest that we have another episode recorded at some time later i would like to like to talk about the other points but i think it's good time for this episode to to finish soon so would you have any final remarks or any themes that you would like to brought up in the discussion yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, it, it's great chatting, and um, I, I guess I'm speaking too much, but that's that's what it is. Um, look, no, I, not at all. <laughs> maybe one thing is, um, and this would be more for uh, the professionals out there, and the healthcare practitioners, and also you know fitness people and physical activity uh, researchers and all, is to always uh, keep in mind that we we love science, we love papers, and we love facts. But that at some point, what matters to people that we're trying to help, you know, is, is how do we apply what we've learned in the real world setting? And that's easy to say, right? And everybody will say that, of course, we know it's not just pure science. It's how we can apply it to people. But people are made of, of their history. They're made of their experiences. They're made of, of the, you know, the current status of their body and also their environment and what motivates them. And our role is not just to apply the science directly, but is also to take into consideration all of these elements. Uh, Post-COVID-19, whenever that happens, uh, whenever we can draw a line and say, this is post now, hopefully soon, yeah. it will be very important to address what the coronavirus pandemic meant to these people, to identify some opportunities for counseling, to identify some potential stressors or some misunderstandings. And I, I think that's uh, to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I, I think I will take a, a point from you that having been in the Swiss mountains for, for a couple of weeks, I think they are probably the best motivators to do physical activity and stay fit that you can actually actually go there. So that's my my final remark for, for this episode. <laughs> Well, Oli, I'd say if you do come back to Switzerland, we're going to have to to connect in real life, of course, and uh, and there's some very nice paths and very nice places that we can go to in the mountains for sure. I I would love to do that. So, thank you a lot for taking the time for this podcast, and I would love to do another episode at other time from the other themes that we didn't covered his time so thanks a lot for taking the time fabulous thank you Oli, for for the the, the opportunity and the, the great questions and uh, i wish everybody out there 
safe times and stay at home, but also be active and use what you can do. This is also an opportunity to learn new things and to make new experiences. So stay safe and uh, see you soon. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.